0: Did you already do Nick? I could do an okay Nick
1: impression. Okay. <laughs> do it just for fun. Let me hear it.
0: morning Carolyn. That's good. Doctor's that's pretty good.
2: good.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Haldman. On this week's episode, the city of New Orleans has a little more than a year remaining to spend over $1 billion of Katrina relief funds on infrastructure, or it risks losing that money, and government watchdog offices are looking into possible mismanagement of the projects. This week, the Louisiana Supreme Court began hearing oral arguments on a split jury case, which could impact hundreds of inmates currently serving time in state prisons. And the final COVID report for the school year shows a rise in cases, again, We'll talk about those numbers. Those stories, insight and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krestel. Hi, Nick. Morning, Kayla. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hey, Charles. Good morning. Okay, Michael, you reported this week that three government watchdog agencies are looking into a major city road work program. Tell us what's going on.
0: We're talking about this massive two billion dollar infrastructure project in New Orleans that really originates during Hurricane Katrina. Um, You know, we're talking about a program that was meant to fix um, the the sewage systems, the the water systems and the roads um, that were damaged um, following the storm. The program is largely funded by FEMA dollars awarded after the storm. And, you know, what what the issue is now is that there is an expiration date on those dollars. Hurricane Katrina was in 2005. um, You know, we're we're here about 17 years later. um, And next year is when um, all this money is going to expire. And and so far, the city has spent somewhere between 25 and 50 percent of the money. So the city has well over $1 billion it needs to spend by August 2023, or we risk losing that all, just the, the federal government kind of clawing it back. So, you know, at the same time that we're dealing, you know, we're kind of looking down the barrel of this, this deadline, we obtain documents showing that there are several government watchdog agencies that are looking into the city's management of the program. Um, We know that the local New Orleans inspector general is expected to put out a report soon. In fact, um, the the inspector general told us it would be the next report he released, um, which would look at the management and, and kind of the protocols around how the city manages all this money. And we also know that a former employee was interviewed by uh, uh, an investigator with uh, FEMA's Fraud Division as well as uh, someone from the uh, the Department of Homeland Security uh, Office of Inspector General. We don't know exactly what any of those investigations are. In fact, the two at the federal level, we don't even know whether those will result in reports um, or, or whether we'll ever hear from those agencies on what they found. However, we, we do know that one discussion topic uh, that, that was, you know, brought up in all of these conversations um, was regarding the man who now runs this entire program, which is referred as the Joint Infrastructure Recovery Request Program, or more simply the JIRR program. Um, and, and basically the allegations here are um, that the man running this program, his name is Khalid Sala, has been steering uh, uh engineering work to a specific contractor who hired his son now with all of this i think at the top we should be very very clear that as of now these are just allegations we we have not even gotten confirmations that there are investigations at the federal level and we have no idea if if, if any of these reports will end up talking about these specific allegations uh, regarding sala however um we know someone who spoke to these offices and we know that this was brought up. And we also have internal emails showing that multiple employees in 2021, uh, in 2020 and 2021, brought up concerns about about the situation with Salva.
1: OK. Do you have any indication of what triggered these investigations, both government, uh, federal watchdog agencies and local agencies? Was that a, uh, a whistleblower kind of trigger that that? prompted those investigations or just the timing? Do you have any idea?
0: We really don't know. I mean, what I do know is that one uh, employee with the Department of Public Works had been reaching out to someone at the New Orleans Ethics Board, um, kind of sending them emails uh, regarding these complaints about Sala. I, I one detail here is that, you know, two the, of the employees that brought up concerns about Sala um, to, to, you know, higher ups in the Cantrell administration were fired shortly after they brought up concerns. Um, and, and what we do know is that a third employee with, with DPW emailed the Ethics Board um, claiming that that these employees were fired because they were raising these issues. Mm. Now, once again, we have no idea if that's true. Um, but if we're talking about possible triggers, we do know that employees were reaching out to, you know, kind of watchdog agencies to, to let them know what was happening. Um, so it, it's possible that was the way. But again, we, we you know, for, for two of these agencies, they haven't even confirmed that they're investigating anything. So, you know, the amount of information, the amount
3: of official information we have is a little limited. Okay. Although, so I'll note on top of that that the DHS o- uh, IG's office has been keeping a very close eye on this program in New Orleans. We know this because in 2017, two years after this, uh, it, the city reached a billion-dollar-plus settlement with FEMA on this uh, on uh, Katrina roadwork funds. Uh, the IG's office released a report saying that all of those funds or most of those funds should be pulled back. Uh, because most of what New Orleans was trying to get repaired was, was damaged already well before the storm. So it can't, they, they were saying couldn't legitimately be counted as damage related to Katrina. That was resolved a year later in 2018, um, and uh, DHS, which is, is, is the parent department of FEMA, DHS allowed the city to keep uh, to keep the full settlement or the settlement that it reached in 2015. But you know that being said, it, it, it does it does show that 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 the DHS IG's office is already had already been very interested in what was going on in New Orleans with this money. If you read that that
0: report from the the DHS IG um, back from 2017, um, you know they, they really imply that the city was awarded more than they should have been awarded. And we don't know now that that office is is not it is technically separate from FEMA. So we don't know exactly how FEMA feels about this. Also, all the person a lot of the personnel would be different than than it was back then. But in terms of coming up against this August 2023 deadline, you know, there is always the chance that that FEMA grants us a, an extension um, to make sure that it doesn't expire. But. You have to wonder if they're already questioning whether they've awarded the city too much money, whether they're going to now grant us an extension to give Mm. us another chance to spend all of it, or whether, you know, they'll just say, okay, win-win, we thought you got too much and it expired before you spent it anyway, so, you know, um, that settles that. So, you know, that, that... I don't know if that's the case, but but the fact that they've been watching this money and have implied in the past that we got too much, you know, makes you wonder if we'll we'll be able to get an extension.
3: Yeah, and I, I, I also to add to that, and I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but I believe the DHS IG's office in twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen, uh, maybe even as late as twenty twenty, um, issued another report about the uh, the sluggish uh, the sluggish pace of. Uh, of Sewerage and Water Board work on its end of the money. So this money is, this money, you know, we refer to it as a shorthand as the city's money, but it's actually, it's actually a joint project involving both the Sewerage and Water Board and uh, the city's Department of Public Works. So yes, again, we've had one, you know, one major report where the DHS IG was recommending clawing back the money and, and another sort of smaller report. Looking at the sluggish pace uh, of uh, sewerage and water board work, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I again, I think these these, these federal departments are, are definitely keeping an eye.
1: Let's go to Sala again. Who is he again, and what what is his role here?
0: Yes, yeah, so so Carlos Sala is currently the program administrator for the entire JIRR program. He, he hasn't always held that position, but but throughout his time with the city, has really. Been centrally involved in the JIRR program. Um, That's just kind of been his bread and butter. Before he was um, kind of running the program, he he kind of seemed, you know, from what I can tell from his job description and from emails, um, appeared to be in charge of, of doling out engineering work. Um, you know, for this project, as opposed to, you know, like construction work um, itself. So, so his role has been pretty central to the JIRR program this entire time. And the contractor, um, you know, kind of at the center of this has become one of the top paid engineering firms um, in this project. Um, it's called ILSI Engineering. Um, it's a firm run by Ian e. Tucker, uh, who was on Mayor Cantrell's transition team in 2018, and uh, who I'll just note right now, you know, told the lens that that, that kind of any suggestion of impropriety here is, is unfounded and untrue. Um, so, you know, just off the bat, just to be clear that, you know, ILSI and the city are, are both very clearly denying that anything unethical um, or untoward happened
3: here. Well, um, she'll she, she also note, you know, in, in, in complete fairness to her, that um, ILSI came on as a JIRR contractor before Sally's son was hired.
0: Yeah, that's right.
3: Um, and as as Charles just indicated, um, Sally's son w- was
0: hired by ILSI in 2020. And, you know, basically we have internal emails showing that DPW other DPW workers were concerned with this. I mean, and not just you know any DPW workers. We're talking about pretty high up managerial level um, uh, employees. Where you know uh, one of the employees that, ha- that 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 you know found issues here and thought that there might be an ethics problem was was the one who was leading up the JIRR project at the time, um, Randy Jones. Um, and again, you know, we know from these emails that, you know, not only was there a question about the amount of work, uh, going to ILSI, but, but, you know, in one email from, from Jones, she basically says that we, we don't understand or know the process that, uh, Sala is even using to award this, the, the, these contracts or, or dole out work pointing to a lack of kind of protocols in that process. And, you know, another thing we should be clear on here is that Sala's son, you know, does not have an does not appear to have an ownership stake in ILSI, which is, you know, that's really when you mostly hear about ethics problems. We're talking about business ownership. Right. Um, however, in this case, what we do know is that, that Salah's son, his name is Lutfi Salah, um, has worked personally as a resident inspector on the JIRR projects on these contracts with the
3: city. So what we do know in ter- you know, in terms of how seriously this was taken internally, um is that while the Cantrell administration has not has you know has not um ad- ad- admitted that there is any sort of a problem they uh, here they were at least concerned enough at one point uh because of the, what had been brought up by by staff to write into the state ethics board to get an advisory opinion so so like charles just said you know while the city
0: is claiming that you know n- nothing unethical
3: happened here
0: It obviously did raise concerns. Um, You know, the the first thing that we know is that actually Sala, you know, as a lot of these concerns were kind of ramping up, he was in line to take over as the interim director of the entire Department of Public Works. Uh, And we know that because these concerns were being raised, the city has said that promotion was put on hold. He would be later promoted to the entire, you know, to lead the JIR program, but he was never made interim director. And also, you know, like Charles just mentioned, the DPW ethics liaison saw at least enough of a potential problem here to write to the state ethics board and ask for an opinion. So, you know, they, they wrote to the to the um, to the ethics board, gave them some basic information on what was going on, although it did let, leave out some details that I believe were significant at the time. Um, and, and the state ethics board came back with an opinion that more or less said that. Salah's uh, Khalid Salah, uh, his continued employment with the city did not pose an ethics problem. However, his son Lutfi Salah um, would not should not be working on any contracts with his father's
3: agency. The the flip side of what Michael said is that it would be okay for him to continue for the son to continue to work on projects that are not part of his his father's agency or that are not overseen by his father's agency so the ethics board was under the was under the impression that um uh, what was going on now uh, what is currently going on and has been going on since his employment at ilsi is that he was not working for for anything overseen by uh by his by his father's quote-unquote agency now michael if you want to unpack that
0: yeah so so right so so the the the, the... The opinion based, it seems to be based off of a misunderstanding of both uh, Khalid Sala's role with the city and what Lufty Sala has done on contracts that ILSI has with the city. If you read the opinion, what it says is that you know that that the ethics board has has previously upheld the idea that a child should not be working on contracts held with one of their parents' government agencies. And now, what the state board w- was kind of tasked with was determining what. Khalid Saleh's agency was. Now, Khalid Saleh works for the Department of Public Works, and his main responsibility is the JIRR program. Now, Based off of the chart that the city provided to the state ethics board, they determined that he actually, that his quote unquote government agency was the operations division of the Department of Public Works. Now, I've looked at the most recent organizational charts um, for the Department of Public Works, and there is no clear operations division. There is a deputy director of operations under which Lutfi sala uh, fell um, you know, in, in the organizational chart that was sent to the ethics board. Um, however, even, you know, if you look at that chart, it, it's still pretty clear um, that even if there was an operations division, it, it would involve capital projects and it would involve the JIRR program. Um, yeah, I mean,
3: in the, the, the chart that they sent, every single person who was in the, you know, under the deputy director of operations were, were all people who were working on JIRR, Right. JIRR. And, and I talked to Kathleen Allen, who's the, 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 the
0: administrator of the, the state ethics office and, and you know what she explained to me is that in these opinions, they try and narrow it down to the smallest unit of government you can right so if you were in Department of Public Works, and you were involved in let's say, you know traffic like contracts, um, then maybe, you know, if you look at it, they would have nothing to do with the, uh, the, the street light contracts, you know maybe those divisions are so separate within the department that there really is no conflict of interest. So they want to narrow it down to, to kind of the smallest unit of government possible, which which can make sense. However, even if you follow that, What we know is that Khalid Salah's main responsibility is the JIRR program. We know that his son, Lutfi Salah, has worked on contracts directly for the JIRR program. So, you know, again, talking to Kathleen Allen, you know, she explained that you basically, what what you're trying to avoid is having a child working on a contract, um, you know, wherever their parent has a sphere of influence within city government. And, and so Khalid Salah not only was his main responsibility to JIRR program, but for a while, his main responsibility was doling out engineering contracts. And yeah. Lutfi Sala mm-hmm. works, on engin- works for an engineering firm on the JIRR program. So if you take kind of the, the heart of what the state ethics opinion was, which is that Lutfi Sala should not be working on tra- contracts with Khalid Sala's agency, mm-hmm. knowing what we know about their involvement in the JIRR program, it, it, it's... I don't want to jump to conclusions here, but it, it's kind of hard to avoid the conclusion that, that this kind of violates the heart of what the state ethics opinion was. Okay. I mean, Charles, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong there. But.
3: No, no, no. I, I think that's, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, that's a solid analysis. And I, I, I would also, I mean, personally, I would quibble with this idea that, that separate divisions within a single city department can be counted as separate agencies. I, I don't think there is a firewall within, you know, between divisions in city departments, the way that the ethics board seems to imagine that there is a fair bit.
1: The Cantrell administration is scrambling to, to use this money. And it sounds like they're right. ramping up the, the plans anyway. What is the plan and how do they expect to meet that deadline?
0: Right. And, and, and this is kind of the reason why, you know, when, when we're talking about, you know, the efficient management of this program, the proper management of this program the the reason why it's kind of so vital is because we're kind of at the precipice of losing you know it possibly losing millions and millions of dollars that that we need for road work here um and and you know again like i mentioned it, this money is set to expire um in august 2023 some of this money we've had even before 2016 um but you know I, All of it we've had access to, or at least theoretically, since 2016. And yet, you know, we stand here today and they haven't spent near half of it. You know, the way this ties into, you know, if you're a New Orleans resident, the way this ties into your everyday life is that, you know, we're now in this kind of mad dash to get all this money out before it's, you know, kind of clawed, you know, potentially clawed back by the federal government which is why you see so much road work going on right now. Um, And, you know, they're basically trying to open up all these projects and finish them as fast as they can. And there are questions, I mean, there have been questions about whether the city has the contracting capacity to do this, whether the city's uh, Department of Public Works has the capacity to keep up with all these projects and and keep up with all the change orders that are needed. You know, one problem with these projects that we've seen over and over again is that you know, they dig up the street and they find something that wasn't supposed to be there or they find a leaky pipe that, you know, it, it's not part of their work order, but, you know, they can't just bury a leaky pipe. So they got to get a change order to fix it first. And, then, you know, again, you know, we're talking about the capacity both at the administration level, at the administrative level, and then at the actual construction level about whether we can do this. And, and you know, I think one chart that I have gone back to over and over and over again um, is this you know this chart that was posted during the uh, in late 2021 um, during a capital budget presentation and it basically shows the city's plan on, on how it's going to get all this work done this year we're trying to double the the normal pace of construction that we're trying to double the amount of, of of projects that DPW usually finishes and then next year we're supposed to triple it from this year and and so again you know We've been dealing with these rampant issues around the current pace of construction, and, and again, the chart really puts it in perspective. You know, again, the plan seems to be we're just going to go three times as fast as we are now, regardless of whether we're even able to keep up with the current pace. It's hard so, not.
1: It's hard not to be a little skeptical,
0: right? And, and who knows? I mean, maybe there are. You know, I, I'm not a contractor. I, you know, I've never worked for a, a department of public works, so I, I really don't know. Um, but you know, based on what we're seeing right now, it is it is hard to imagine. Um, That if they they can't meet the capacity of the current project they're doing right now,
3: that they're now going to be able to triple it. So let let me me just offer you an alternative scenario. Suppose that the real goal here, or someone's goal maybe, is not in fact to do this acceleration in order to finish, but the acceleration is in fact, or maybe, about starting. It might be about starting as many projects as they can over over you know before they get to this deadline, on the assumption that if we have boots on the ground, if we have work going on, we're more likely to get that extension. Yeah, and that I, fair. Mean, I don't know if that's true, but it would kind of explain some things. It's plausible in fact the case.
0: And yeah, if, I want to put one more thing in perspective because when 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 the when this money was first announced under, under former mayor, Mitch Landrieu, you know, it was really pitched as this, you know, once in a generation opportunity to kind of get ahead on, you know, the problem of dilapidated streets here. You know, I think in the last year, the public focus has really turned to all these open roadwork problems, these these seemingly never-ending stagnant roadwork problems. But prior to the last couple of years, remember that our main focus collectively has been on the state of our streets, on all the potholes, on streets that you need you know, a tank to get down without damaging your car. And, and, you know, at the time when this money was announced back in 2015, it was estimated that we, to, to, to get our streets into, you know, passable shape, it was going to cost $9.3 billion. Mm. Now this was a $2 billion, roughly $2 billion program. Um, so even if we had spent all of this money, it still wouldn't have met the need and again we're talking about seven years ago now you know right. who knows how, how much worse the streets might have gotten since then because you know uh, it's long been a problem with street maintenance in this city but you know again you know even if we're able to spend this money all of it we'll still have billions of dollars of road work we need to do and so the idea of losing out, millions of dollars and then still sitting with the problem of dilapidated and and kind of unnavigable streets, you know, it's a little disappointing. I mean, again, this program was never pitched as a full, you know,
3: solution to our streets, and we may not even be able to get all this money out the door. So, you
1: know, right. um, Yeah.
3: And just worth noting, I had never really taken a close schedule or a close look at the schedule for the projects that are in the pipeline. But, you know, I have over the last couple of weeks, because you've been working on this story, and you go to roadwork.nola.gov and go to the to the JIRR section, you can you can see that most of, of the projects that they have that, that are currently under construction to some degree um, were supposed to be done in 2020 or 2021.
1: Okay, it's a great story. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel. Marta Jusin and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, the Chief Operating Officer at the Lens. The New Orleans Press Club just awarded eight Excellence in Journalism Awards to The Lens, including first and second place for government and political reporting, and first place for this very podcast you're listening to now. The Lens is a nonprofit public media. You can tell because of the high quality of what you read each day. You can tell because of the stories and research and doggedness that we use to bring you the news that matters. And you can also tell because we ask you directly to support this service that makes such a difference in your life. Your investment supports high quality news, in depth reporting, and connections to your neighbors and the world. Please make a contribution today at lensnola.org. And thank you. Nick, the Louisiana Supreme Court began hearing oral arguments this week in a split jury case, which could decide the fate of hundreds of inmates. The particular case they're hearing right now, the Reginald Reddick case, is a 25-year-old murder case. Why is it important right now?
2: Yeah, so like you said, Reginald Reddick was convicted of murder back in 1997 for uh, actually a 1993 killing um, of Al Molieri, But he was convicted by a tentative jury, a split jury um, which at the time was was legal in Louisiana, but you know, fast forward to 2018, and the, the voters of the state uh, voted to require unanimity going forward. And then the Louis the United States Supreme Court in 2020 ruled that non unanimous jury verdicts were unconstitutional. So that affected cases that were still on direct appeal. It did not apply to cases like Reginald Reddick, who had been in prison for you know a few decades already, but Then subsequently, the United States Supreme Court ruled again in a case called Edwards v. Vannoy that they would not apply their ruling of uh, that non-unanimous race were unconstitutional to old cases, Um, but they kind of left open the possibility that individual states uh, being Louisiana and Oregon were the only two that that were affected by this um, could determine themselves to apply that ruling retroactively. To past cases. So there are about 1,500 people who are, are still in prison on non-unanimous jury verdicts. And so this case really affects them and whether or not they'll get a new trial.
1: Okay. What else was said at the hearing? How did it go so far?
2: Well, the judges, I'd say on the whole seemed skeptical of the kind of whether or not they should, they should grant relief. You know, the law itself, one of the kind of main arguments that people who believe that people still in prison on split juries are entitled to a new trial is that this law was passed during the Jim Crow era. It was uh, put into the Louisiana State Constitution during a convention where things like poll taxes um, and literacy tests for voting were, were passed. These laws that were specifically designed to disenfranchise uh, Black people um, who, who you know had, had just recently gained their freedom after the Civil War. And they argued that this law was specifically designed to silence the voices of, of black jurors who might get on a jury and in order to then convict more black defendants. So the idea being if there were two black jurors that, that made it on, you would still be able to convict someone, you know, with the with the rest of the, the jury pool being white. Um, and there's some evidence that that continued on, uh, you know, to today. But one of the things that the justices were really interested in were was, you know, whether or not this law sort of retained its racial uh, racist taint from the uh, from the the 1800s convention and whether or not that was still something they needed to be concerned about today. you know, there was another convention in 1973 during which this the law was changed slightly. it went from being, allowing a a nine to three jury verdict to a 10 to two jury verdict. And so one of the questions was whether or not this 1973 convention was whether or not the law was passed again without any racial animus. And, you know, even one of the judges said, the justices said, I, you know, I knew someone in that, during that, in that convention, a delegate to that convention, and they would have never passed something uh, that was racially, you know, motivated, Hmm. which i think
0: but the judge said that
2: yeah one of the justices uh specifically said uh, he it was uh reverend Avery Alexander who's a, who's actually a civil rights leader in in Louisiana you know so i think lawyers for Redick would would push back and say you know just because you know some some of the people in the convention during the convention you know may have had progressive views on on uh civil rights at the time doesn't wouldn't necessarily mean that this law was kind of cleansed of, of its uh racist origin
3: well yeah um, and, and and i mean you know putting together a constitution is it is obviously an effort of that involves a significant amount of compromise and on top of that i would say that there was not as much there probably I, I i imagine there was not quite as much focus on this issue back in in the 70s as there has been for the Past couple of years, although maybe because the I, I the actually now that I'm thinking about it, the year before this in '72, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, uh, was when the Supreme Court had upheld the constitutionality of state non unanimous jury verdicts. So maybe maybe it was at, at the front of their minds. But what we've seen in, in sort of the pushback on, on repealing this law and making the repeal retroactive, and I imagine back in the 70s as well, is there's a lot of deference to prosecutors and what, um, what prosecutors want. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, a lot of the argument in the 70s was that, you know, this had prosecutors had come to def- depend on this as part of their strategy. And that—that that was actually a lot of the argument leading up to the 2018 vote. We were hearing from some prosecutors who were opposed to the repeal of this. Um, and now we're seeing a similar argument happening in the court: is that prosecutors are saying this is just going to make make our lives a nightmare for the next couple of years. We're going to have to retry hundreds of cases, or possibly, you know, give up some convictions. That's that's
2: right. Um, and. You know, that's what the, the lawyer for the attorney general's office was arguing was basically, you know, when it was passed in 1973, again, this was for judicial efficiency. This was to kind of move move the court system along. It, it had nothing to do with with racial bias. So.
1: Uh, meanwhile, there's a bill moving through the legislature that sort of addresses this question. Some prisoner advocates are worried about how that will affect the court deliberations in this case. What is that about?
2: There's a couple bills in the legislature that, that would deal with this issue, the one that passed out of the committee last week would create a sort of a special panel of former judges, uh, former public defenders and former district attorney that would be sort of a special parole committee that would look at split jury cases, people still in prison could could send in a petition to this panel and they would determine whether or not the split jury decision created a significant miscarriage of justice in their mind. So what they're trying to kind of do is give a path for people that have cases where I think they're really, you know, finding some evidence of potential actual innocence or, you know, significant racial bias in, in the trial you know advocates are opposed to this they believe that that you know as as someone said at the hearing that the miscarriage of justice occurred when the when the split jury decision came in that should be enough right there to guarantee a new trial they also don't uh believe that parole which is what this committee would be determining they would be giving you know granting release but it would be With conditions and it would it would not be vacating the conviction and taking it off someone's record it would simply be letting them out of prison with with like i said certain conditions that that's not the the path that that these people deserve but it was brought up during the oral arguments um and kind of was a a point made by the lawyer for the attorney general's office was like it was the legislature is dealing with this this is not something the court needs to do and that one of the justices specifically asked and said, Do you think we should wait uh, for the legislature to act? And and the attorney kind of indicated that they should. So that that is one bill. And then there is another bill that has yet to be heard that would would actually grant new trials to, to all these individuals. And that's the one that, that you know, advocates and, and formerly incarcerated people on these on these decisions are really pushing for. But it's in a difficult committee, and I, I think this year it has a, a pretty uphill battle at, at the legislature. Right. Yeah, that's how it seems to me, too.
1: Any idea how long this is before uh, resolution?
2: No, I think I don't think the, the state Supreme Court kind of gives any indication when their decisions will come out after oral arguments. So, you know, we'll see. My guess is it'll be at least a matter
3: of uh, probably a matter of months. Yeah I, would say, I, yeah, I would say with the case that's uh, significant, um, it could be a little while before we see any kind of a decision. Mm-hmm.
1: So. Okay, thanks, Nick. Thank you. Marta, school's wrapping up. COVID cases are on the rise. What's the latest We're data? Wrapping up.
4: Graduations <laughs> are happening, proms are happening, and COVID cases are up. You're right. <laughs> What's the
1: latest number?
4: Um, we have 123 coming from the city, or from, sorry, from the public school system here but you know it's slightly higher obviously from the state report which includes um, parochial schools and other schools.
1: Okay and what does that represent from last week's report?
4: Uh, It's the fifth straight week of increasing numbers Mm. so I think we're definitely seeing an increase and if you look at the city report it nearly doubled in percent positivity over the last week.
1: And how's it match with state data?
4: Actually, for the first time, it kind of matches with the state data. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, <There you> <laughs> uh, right. I was going to say Charles is going to be really happy about this. Um, yeah. I, you know, I calculated the district runs its own or helps facilitate its testing in schools, and for the first time, their numbers were you know, presumptively lower than what the state reported.
3: Which yeah, is- which is what it should be because the state is going to have. The state is going to have more schools in Orleans Parish than uh, than the uh, district schools alone, because, as Marta mentioned, we'd also be talking about schools run, charter schools run by the state, as opposed to the district, and Catholic schools all go into the in, in, into the total for the for the state's report on
4: Orleans Parish. First time I've seen that in a long time. Yeah. Um, but definitely numbers are going up. If you you want to talk about the canary and the coal mine, like. Uh, it's going up
1: okay and this is the yeah. last report we're going to see for the school year
4: yes unfortunately um we still have a couple of weeks to go in the school year they hesitantly told us with some nudging that this would be their last report of the school year mm. and when i say nudging it took a lot of nudging like i'm i don't understand why it wasn't easy to just tell us it was their last report but it's, it's never, never <laughs> here we are just, exactly it's never easy so that's what we're going to see from them. They said they will continue testing in June a little bit for you know whoever's running um, you know makeup classes and things like that, but they won't report that data.
3: Are they going to have open testing for anybody who you know? I mean, they they've been doing testing. If, correct me if I'm wrong. That was open to you know anybody who was in a school or faculty or staff member, and it was sort of like a convenient place to go test for people. It seems that something like that would still be useful over the summer, but it, it doesn't sound like they're going to do it—at least not at the same level.
4: My guess is that if you're in the summer program or you're in a remediation program, that you can go get tested, mm-hmm. but that they're not—it's not going to be open call like it used to be. That's my—that's my guess. I—I I don't actually know
1: entirely. Got it. Well, sadly, but also, I guess, fittingly, and a little poetically. We talk about COVID numbers and you're suffering from COVID. So I hope you feel better soon. And appreciate that. Yeah. And thanks everybody. I
4: I can't believe we made it two years, but man, it's a haul.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, get better soon and talk to you guys later.
3: Thanks,
4: Carolyn. All
1: right. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the lens, New Orleans first, nonprofit, nonpartisan, public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.